Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. K-Nut. That is me. How you doing, Mr. Howie? Bonjour. Bonjour, ça va, monsieur? Où sont les cochons? Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but I'm sure it's something... Uh... Where are the pigs? <laughs> les cochons sont dans la rue. Today, uh, yeah, I speak a little French. You grew up in Toronto, I had to learn Yiddish, French, Hebrew, English. Oh, my God. Yeah, didn't learn any of them. No, no. I had a little you, bit of French. Force kids to learn four languages. Guess what? They they're terrible at all four. Exactly. So uh, I spoke in French because Brett Bivens. It's like uh, three in the morning, I think, in Paris, according to my Apple Watch. No, it's probably about midnight. So he's been waiting up for us to uh, have him on Panic with Friends. Brett is one of my favorite uh, reads. Sounds good. And he invests in human health, happiness, opportunity, and productivity through uh, TechNexus. So he's going to talk a little bit about that. Moved to Paris. That seems cool. Very cool. And, uh, and there's many reasons he did that. And he's got some, I'm seeing some great angles uh, from seeing the world at the venture level from Le, Gros, Le Great Paris. And uh, he writes... Adventure Desktop, and I follow him on Twitter. I think everybody, after they listen to me, will be following him as well. Um, as the StockTwits community knows, listen, I like thinking about big trends, and the best way to think about big trends is not by looking just at the daily prices, but by seeing how venture capitalists and people around the world who love investing are thinking about incumbents and public stocks. Brett does a little bit of both, and I kind of try and synthesize people like Brett into my thinking. So uh, we've only uh, chatted. We do not uh, have faced, luckily, he probably wouldn't agree to this if he had met me. So <laughs> we're going to get him. We're going to get him around the phone. Have you been to Paris? I have been to Paris many times. I love that city. Okay. So let's get Brett uh, on the phone. All right. Sounds good. Hello? Brett. Howard, how are you? I'm doing good. How late is it there? It is quarter after 10, so not, oh, not too late. It's lunchtime. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Most, I think I, most people are just starting dinner, although, yeah, with, I would, with two kids, I would like we're, a, we're well past And some french fries, please. And some duck, <laughs> something duck, please, immediately. Someone somewhere is ordering duck and an espresso right now in Paris, and that's kind of like, and lighting a cigarette. Undoubted, undoubtedly, yeah. Do you smoke? I do not. I do not smoke. Have does not picked up the habit since I moved over here. Does your new baby smoke? Not yet. Um, I mean, I, I think it's uh, yeah. They they start them young here, but we'll. I mean, we'll try to we'll try to hold off. I think we're we're in good shape. He, he doesn't seem too interested. <laughs> and so, tell I gave a quick brief background. Uh, take your time. Tell everybody a little bit about Brett Bibbins. Um, so yeah, uh, background on me. So I grew up mostly in Michigan. Um, my sort of life, I guess, as a, as a kid growing up centered mostly around sports. So I was a big baseball player and played pretty much everything else under the sun. Um, and that's sort of what got me to college, got me a 
a scholarship to play uh, college baseball at a school called Valparaiso right outside of Chicago. Um, so that was, you know, I was always a, a good student, very interested in learning all of that, but uh, was really always had this sort of vision and, and focus on, on baseball, on the sport, and just sort of felt like I was going to, I guess, just play until somebody told me I, I couldn't anymore and kicked me off the field, essentially. Um, and I guess like most people, that happened relatively early. So, you know, coming out of college, I uh, had, to, had to go find a job. Um, I had majored in, in finance in school, and so it was always sort of looking at that track, interested in that track. Um, really didn't have much of an idea of what I wanted to do, but um, had the opportunity to uh, take a role in sort of one of those investments in corporate banking programs in Chicago uh, with Bank of Montreal. And that was, I mean, kind of first foray into, into professional life. Um, but around that time, so this was, you know, about a decade ago, around that time, uh, started following people, frankly, like you on, on Twitter and, and really uh, saw this world that existed outside of that sort of basic, normal professional track um, in a large corporate uh, thing. And so that's sort of what got me into, um, I guess, thinking maybe a little bit differently about opportunities that were out there, about the startup world. Um, about investing in different ways. And so I uh, was lucky sort of right after that, um, after about a year and a half there, had the opportunity to sort of fuse those, uh, those emerging passions of mine, which were tech and the one that I had had for such a long time in sports. Um, joined a startup out of New York called Crossover Intelligence, which was focused on sports analytics, um, really a, a cool opportunity with you know, video and media and, uh, and sports. And so that job actually took me to India, uh, over to Bangalore. So that was, I guess, my first uh, personal foray into uh, working internationally, living internationally. Um, helped us set up an office and, and scale an office over there to a couple hundred people um, before moving back to the U.S. Uh, was in San Francisco for, for a little while. I uh, was in Chicago for a little while, in both cases working uh, at early stage companies helping to, to build and launch uh, products and, and sell products and, and get those to market and across a bunch of different areas. So across e-commerce and uh, enterprise SaaS and a little bit in kind of the fintech and equity crowdfunding space as well. So had exposure to a bunch of those areas and, and sort of at that point was realizing that I loved all of those areas. I, I loved going deep in all of those areas. I, I enjoyed studying them, talking to people on the ground, doing interesting work there, um, but wanted to continue to have, I guess, exposure across all these different categories and all of these different company types. And the sort of natural next step for me was to, to move a bit into the investing side and was really lucky to meet the, the founding team at TechNexus uh, about four years ago, which was when I made the leap from working in those operating roles to working in uh, more of an investing role. And what was the reason for Paris move? A uh, mix, of, mix of personal and professional. So my wife is from here. Um, we were, you know, in the process of having our second kid and we wanted to sort of see what it was like to, to live here, uh, raise kids here, sort of compare and contrast with life in the United States. Um, so that was the first piece of it. Uh, I think in the, in the time that I had gotten to know her and, and had spent a lot of time over here, had also gotten to know the European venture ecosystem really well and had built up uh, a lot of connections with people, started to build relationships and was just really excited about what was happening here uh, from a talent perspective, from a capital perspective, um, and also saw an opportunity for us to uh, invest over here and then be a, you know, a path, a conduit to help companies uh, expand into the U.S. And, and sort of provide that 
that landing spot for them as a firm. And so um, we were able to kind of build a strategy around that. And I moved over here about two years ago to pursue that um, in addition to the personal stuff. And what's been the biggest, I mean, listen, we live in 2020, right? So COVID's COVID, it's everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Outside of the virus, what has been the biggest adjustment for doing your job? You know, I think it's, um, it has really been a, cha- a challenge and an interesting challenge to try to plug into all of the different venture ecosystems here in, in Europe. I think that's been a big piece of our strategy is trying to figure out how to, how to fit in in all these different places, London, Berlin, Stockholm, obviously Paris, um, and what the right way to do that is. And so that's, been, that's certainly been an interesting challenge to try to figure out, especially now when you can't travel as much. But as one person uh, over here on our team, there's really only so much travel I could do in the first place. So I think that's, been, that's certainly been one piece of it. Um, and then you know, time zone stuff is, uh, is always a, a bit of a challenge, but I think our, our team is pretty good at that and um, have, yeah, have, have adjusted just fine to that. So it's, it's largely been about trying to really parse what's going on on the ground in all of these different markets um, and, and trying to figure out ways to, to actually know what's going on there. Um, at, you know, and we're typically investing seed stage, late seed stage uh, for the most part. And so a lot of the more interesting thing that's hap- things that are happening on the ground are not going to necessarily be you know, in the press, publicized, et cetera. So I think that's been, um, you know, the most interesting challenge to, to try to tackle. And how big's the firm now? So we are a team of about 15 and that's spread across uh, an investing team. Uh, we've got people on our team that are really focused on driving sort of post-investment collaboration with this big corporate network that we have. So that's sort of the model that we uh, largely pursue is these vertical focused funds in different categories. So industrial categories, health and wellness, um, public safety and, and smart city is another one. And then audio and media is another area that we focus among a few other places. So a big group of people on the investing team, uh, a team of people that are really focused on that post-investment work. And then um, additionally, some some other folks that are you know playing a bunch of different roles. So uh, that's kind of the the size there, and then in terms of you know investing in, in portfolio, um, I think we'll we'll probably deploy somewhere on the order of of twenty million or so this year. And current portfolio is around seventy five, eighty companies. And what are the things today? Like, what's your sole focus? I know you love music or or audio. So is that like top of your list? That's a yeah. That's that's one of the bigger focus areas. It's been an area that we have invested quite a bit in um, over the last three or four years. So uh, one of our sort of corporate partners in that space is a company called Sure, which is a microphone and headphone company, and that provides us with a really interesting sort of aperture into uh, the ecosystem at sort of the the corporates and incumbent level. And yeah, we've we've done a lot of investing in that area as well. So that's that's definitely one big area that we've um, invested in audio and then media more broadly. And then uh, another uh, kind of segment that we've been pretty active in is, is digital health and, and wellness. Um, and so that's been, you know, I think in, in both cases have been categories that have been interesting to see, you know, the the emerging trends, the acceleration of trends that has happened in the midst of all of this. But uh, but yeah, those are those are two of the big areas that we've been probably most focused on. And again, with 80 companies in the portfolio and all of these different vertical focuses, it, it really is almost generalist. It breaks out to, but, uh, but yeah, each of us have different areas that we focus on, pursue more aggressively. So like me, you seem to like the public markets and, and kind of our past, past really crass when I think about how you think about audio and Spotify and social networks. Um, 
what got you interested in public markets? Does that play a factor at all in what you do? Or are you just like, are you just like talking about them? I think it does. I mean, I think for one, it provides an easier um, and more, I guess, other people that are out there that you want to maybe talk to or have conversations with about these markets have more context around public companies. And so it's maybe easier uh, and more accessible for everybody to have those types of conversations in in more of a public setting. So it lends itself to Twitter conversations and, and blog posts and whatnot. So that's one piece of it. Um, I think there's, but there's absolutely, you know, a company like Spotify has its hands in so many different parts of the audio and media ecosystem. And so I think as an early stage investor in that category, it makes sense to, to follow them closely, understand what they're doing, what they're seeing, how user behavior is coalescing around the products that they're bringing to the market. Um, that's, that's definitely a piece of it. And I think the other interesting thing, you know, with a company like Spotify, and there's obviously a handful of these and increasingly um, is, is seeming to be true with many of these companies that go public and uh, build these big, big businesses is that it's founder led. And so as an early stage investor, I think that's always something that you know, I'm trying to learn more and more about is what does it take for somebody like Daniel Ek to go from, you know, this early stage founder, this young founder in a very much a secondary market and build this company that's now a $45, $50 billion market cap company. And so trying to trying to piece together all of those different things, I think is a, is a pretty interesting um, way of, of looking at it and thinking about it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely, I guess, the, the interest in the, the public markets there. And you have a unique take on Spotify. You got long, I'm long. Well, I don't know if you're long, but you have a great thesis that has proven out recently. Uh, what do you like about it? What, what do you think the big opportunity is there and in, in the obstacles, the biggest obstacles? You know, like I said, it's a company that I've been following for, for quite some time, but I'd always been a little bit hesitant to, to really pull the trigger and, and go long on the, on the company. Um, I think there's, there's, the competitive landscape is pretty crazy. Um, you know, you look at who, who they're up against and it's just pick a, pick a big, impressive, aggressive company and they're on that list. So that's a challenge. The sort of business model challenges are well known um, around the relationship with record labels and things like that. So that was always the thing that sort of pushed me off to it. Obviously, like a lot of people in my ears started perking up around the time that they got a little bit more aggressive in podcasting. And, you know, as I was thinking about... Um, you know, my, my personal relationship to Spotify as a user, I started seeing myself using it more and more. I thought that was an interesting data point. You start looking at the numbers and it's, you know, 280 million users now. And you see the, the figures around, you know, hour and a half per day or, you know, whatever it may be, whatever it is, it's a pretty impressive pool of attention that they're capturing. And so started saying, okay, I'm probably never going to turn from this product. These hundreds of millions of users are likely never going to churn from this product, or at least it's going to take something significantly to, to make that happen. And so that was certainly one piece of it. And I think the, the podcast strategy, even back in sort of Q3 of last year, seemed like it was starting to, to pay dividends in, in terms of, you know, not necessarily increasing margins for the business, because they do have the uh, sort of long-term relationships with the record labels that do lock them into a certain margin structure over time. But was increasing their leverage uh, and just the uh, the access to talent and the access to those artists that they uh, that they were getting, and so you know you could sort of see that incremental leverage increasing, increasing, increasing. And then I think the other piece of it, and this kind of the phrase or the term that I always use for it, is ambient media. So uh, ambient media being this idea that you know you've got the extension of ambient computing. Essentially, you've got the iPhone in your pocket that's serving your your airpods and your glasses and so you start to get into this world where 
media is a little bit more contextual, um, a little bit more dynamic, and becomes more of an eyes up sort of format. So I think that eyes up format where you've got you know media around you all the time, it, it sort of tends to audio a little bit. And because of the fact that Spotify has always been so strong on the discovery side of things, I thought that that was another piece that sort of gave them an edge there. And so that was sort of the the impetus for uh, for me. I guess, going long, uh, getting excited about the direction that they were going. And then I think really over the last, you know, I think that was probably December when I started getting really excited about it. Um, over the last four or five months, they've just gotten so aggressive with new product features, new releases, um, seemingly kind of cashing in on some of that leverage that they've, that they've established to really accelerate the business. So it's been, yeah, exciting to see. And is there a blind spot? Like what, other than the, you know, they're always going to be Apple, whether Apple tries, no, I think it's too late for them to even, it just doesn't move the needle for Apple. So Apple will just be Apple. Exactly. So my question, is there any, other than their own lack of, you know, focus, which, you know, this is what's great about founder led companies. There's no reason that he should relax. He knows he can't relax. Um, is there right. blind spots there other than valuation? I mean, I don't know if they're blind spots, but I think there's, I mean, there's two real, yeah, real significant challenges or things that if they really started to lose their edge uh, would, would, be, would be concerning. I think the first one is around discovery. So if they were to, and this is kind of a squishy thing, it's hard to say, you know, exactly how they're better in discovery than maybe their other uh, competitors. But I think what you're seeing today is that companies like TikTok and, and maybe even Snap now, who, who has access to music rights and is starting to do some things around music, if they sort of redefine the way that, that music and audio is discovered via, you know, very social uh, channels, I think that's a, that's a big concern. So I think you're seeing Spotify like push more aggressively into social features, uh, social elements of the product to kind of combat against that. But I think that's a major risk for the company. Um, and then I think the other one is sort of around this idea of ambient media again. And, you know, it's not Sarah Tavel from Benchmark has a really good way of framing this where she talks about media and attention as sort of rocks and sand and water, sort of that old parable. I don't know exactly where it's from, but that old parable. And you get things like, you know, Netflix that are a two hour movie and that's a, that's a rock. Um, and that's, you know, exists there. Whereas something like audio is a little bit more like water. And it, again, it's, it fits into all these different cracks in your day when you're out walking your mm. dog or uh, cleaning the dishes, doing, doing all of that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, one of the things that becomes a pretty big risk for Spotify if they don't move aggressively in this area is around social audio experiences. So, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the hype and conversation is around things like Clubhouse, but I think what I'm more referring to is probably more around gaming. So if instead of putting my AirPods in and putting a song on while I go walk my dog, if I go into a Discord channel to listen to my friends play whatever game they're playing at the time, even if I can't fully participate in the game, just being there and in conversation, I think, you know, I think that poses a pretty big threat. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how far down that social path Spotify goes. So I guess all of that is to say, like, social seems to be the blind spot, uh, or at least the area that they haven't pushed far enough in yet that they probably need to, to, to really accelerate long term. What goes, it comes full circle, right? They grew on the backs of Facebook social and now they have to figure out how to handle it in a, now that they're a planet kind of attention planet themselves. Um, they now have to solve it again, which brings me to Snapchat, another stock that I'm long. Don't use it, obviously, because I'm 54 and don't understand it, but I see my kids using it and I kind of got bullish recently. So 
You mentioned recently that they could do this as lovers or as enemies. Where do you see them crossing paths? Yeah, I I can't see them ever, you know, merging or, or really coming together in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, if it's an M&A situation, I think that's pretty unlikely. Just again, going back to the founder-led thing um, with, with the two founders there being very, you know, very visionary, very product-focused, very, very long-term focused. It's hard to see that ever happening. Um, and so, so I think that it does become more of a, you know, more of a competitive uh, dynamic with, with those two. Um, again, with, with Snap trying to uh, they you know recently acquired music rights to to see if they can work that into the product. I think a lot of the stuff that they're doing with um, you know almost the the super app play where they're starting to loop uh, different different applications into what they're doing that gives them you know access potentially to products like Headspace to work with and different ways to start kind of capturing attention from an audio perspective. So you know I think they'll probably get closer together. Uh, and then on the other side, Spotify doing more things around social with group sessions and. Um, you know, giving artists tools to, to create sort of social-like experiences around their music and around their work. So I think they'll probably come closer together from a competitive standpoint. Um, I think there's probably, you know, quite a bit of room and quite a bit of growth left in both of the areas that they're in. And I think both, again, like you said, have that focus that is drawn from having founders at the helm and long-term founders at the helm. So, so yeah, I, I think that... Uh, you know, as interesting as that would be, and as many sort of Substack posts and, and tweets and, and whatnot that a, a really deep uh, relationship between the two would uh, would birth, I think it's probably more likely that they are a bit adversarial. Oh, that's interesting because I, I totally agree with you, right? In a world of maybe not egos, but like I built this, uh, I don't need to sell it. You know, see the same thing with Slack. Oh, you know, everybody's specking about who will buy them. And I'm like, no, if you know, why would he sell? Same thing with Ev. Like, you've been this far. Why do you need to sell? Unless it becomes. Right. But there always is a case where these two guys get in the back room and go, fuck it. We can't. If we're going to be a, a super app and a planet for real, we're just going to have to swallow the ego and merge and kick some ass. Because like, Microsoft, you know, Nadella calls Trump on a weekend to get the TikTok deal done, you know? Like, I don't even know how that yeah, shit no, works. Like, this is like, a great, there is no, great there point. is no even playing field anymore. It's just war. No, that's a hundred percent true. And I, I think that's actually another reason that I've been sort of interested in seeing this Spotify journey play out a little bit from my, my perch, uh, I guess here in Europe is, you know, that it is one of those marginalized companies, Snap, Snap as well, who have performed extremely well, been extremely innovative around product. Um, but are still sitting there as subscale in a world of trillion dollar companies. And yeah, how how do you how do you actually compete and get to the point where where you can actually fend off uh, you know attacks if if an Apple were to actually invest in in going after this space or you know again like you said if if Microsoft can just make that one phone call and acquire this uh, this massive product um, and and put snap on its heels. I think, yeah, I think that's actually a really interesting point that they might just out of, out of self-preservation be forced into something like that. Well, it's not self-preservation. I mean, the market's just bidding them up, whether they like it or not. And the pressure of that finally will bring them to the table and say, listen, I'm 50 billion. We could laugh all night. You know, we could say, oh, I really think I'm worth 50 billion. This is what the market's going to have to come to. The market's starting mm -hmm. to price in the fact that people are going to have to gang up to build you know, planets themselves. Otherwise, you know, the markets bid these things up to $50 billion. I'm not saying I don't think Spotify on its own in a world of zero interest rates can get to $100 billion. I do think that. Uh, right. But that's just based on 
this fantasy of zero interest rates and a product that's, you know, eight to 80, you know, but, you know, mathematically in an Excel spreadsheet, it'll never make sense. So I think they're just going to have to at some point or see their stocks, you know, regularly fall 30 to 50 percent. And so that's interesting. And in the and then Twitter, which you use a lot, what what should they do? I know you've you've talked about subscription sites. So what what's the play if you're a CEO there and you want to get the stock out of the doldrums? What what are they doing wrong for so many smart people to be using it and frustrating, you know, shareholders? Is there something there that you see? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much sort of value they've created for uh, for other platforms as a discovery engine. I mean, I think you can you can point to. Podcasts is one area where they've powered a, a significant amount of, of value around discovery. I think everything that's happening today around these, you know, one-person media companies um, has all really been powered by you know Twitter discovery. Um, that interest graph is is so incredibly powerful. So I, I think that you know it, it might be early enough in the life cycle of this you know emerging media market of all of these individuals breaking away from publications or um, or you know, at least rethinking the way that they address their audiences to try to do something there. Um, you know, I don't have a ton of faith necessarily in, in Twitter to be able to pull that off and to really be able to create a monetization engine around that that is, you know, both, uh, both good for them and good for the users. I, I think they've, they've struggled with that kind of stuff in the past. But, you know, I don't know if subscription is a, a cure-all for that, but it certainly does seem to uh, to make sense, they are the center of the universe for all of these uh, journalists and writers and a, a lot of you know a lot of content creators. So I, I think it does make sense for them to at least pursue that subscription play, see if they can heed that off before it gets another before another market gets away from them, like music did, like podcasting has. So I think it's yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's that's I, one path. It, it's like medium. You know, Evan Jack. Hey, yeah, I don't know what the deal is, but obviously, Ev leaves starts medium. Jack leaves starts yep. square. Jack back at Twitter. Ev's still at Medium, just writing checks. Substack comes along and out Medium's Medium on a business model or utility basis, right? And it just feels like Jack's going to make the move. When I saw you write that, I go, that totally makes sense. They could totally afford it. It's such a scalable, simple tie into the text-based version of what Twitter is, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're talking about Substack. Is that what you're talking about? Or Medium yeah, or, yeah. Twitter yeah. buying Substack. They'll never buy Medium and Medium kind of yeah, missed yeah. the boat in terms of how totally. to build a subscription product. Yeah, no, and it, it is so interesting. I mean, you you sort of see, and not, not to totally change the subject here, it's still on, on points a little bit with what Jack's done at Square, but the just the depth of sort of understanding and the uh, the internalization of how to build a really great social product there with what they've done with Cash App. Um, it's, it's almost amazing that they haven't been able to translate. Uh, and again, these are different companies, of course, but with the same leadership at the helm to not be able to, to translate some of that mojo, I guess, over to, to Twitter is, is, uh, kind of incredible. So, um, I don't know, I, it would be kind of interesting to see if, if those two companies come closer together over time, uh, square is a company that I'm long. I, I think they're a really interesting business. Um, but yeah, that's, that'd be another one that, you know, could be, could be an interesting, you know, I don't know if it's a merger or anything like that, but something that's, you know, something that's interesting is if those companies were to come closer together. And for, for the audio files, what is interesting? What are you seeing? I saw you mentioned this app called Cappuccino, but what, what are you playing with that's interesting in the audio space? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think those uh, social products that are coming up, a lot of them are audio first. And I think there's there's some really, really cool stuff happening there. So yeah, Cappuccino is a really cool one. Uh, a company called Riff uh, is, is a really cool one as well. We're not investors in either of these companies, but um, just sort of love a lot of the experimentation that's happening around short form audio, social audio, um, different ways of... Because one of the things that I think is, is a big problem in the audio space is that there's sort of this this residue or these, these accidents that have accumulated over time in that world where it's like, this is your music app. This is your podcasting app. This is your audiobook app. Um, and that has a lot to do with sort of these, you know, monopolies like Apple who didn't really do much in podcasting for years and Amazon with books and the record labels with, with music holding, uh, you know, holding so much power in that space. And so everything's sort of been separated. And now I think there's, there's really interesting things coming together at, you know, kind of the intersection of, of all of that stuff. So making it possible for social audio experiences to emerge. Um, live audio is, is certainly interesting. Um, and then I still think there's a lot of interesting things to, to happen in, I guess, like the wellness space um, around audio and, and media more generally. So uh, that, that'd be a few kind of quick thoughts there. And what are you, and Cappuccino, what does it do? Like you said, you like it. So what is it, what, what's the use case? Yeah, so the use case is it's a pretty malleable use case. Um, it's sort of like this very intimate, uh, very personal uh, radio show that you might have with uh, with your friends, and it's an asynchronous sort of radio show. Um, so you're sort of going through the day. Uh, you record, you know, different uh, different cappuccinos. You those all get stitched together automatically with some really nice background music, and you wake up in the morning and you've got a you know three to three to five minute video or audio. Uh, uh, recording of your friends or your family kind of talking you through what happened in their day. Um, so like the use case that we kind of use it for, which is kind of fun, is mostly family. So we've got a five-year-old, he's telling jokes or uh, teaching his cousin in, in the U.S. Uh, different French words, and she's responding back with, you know, different things like that. And so I, I think there's like an intimacy to audio that is is really interesting. And, you know, again, that's a very early stage product with some really great founders and who knows where it will go over the long term. But I think that there's... Um, there's some really, you know, interesting, interesting work to be done around that intimacy that audio creates and how you can weave that into more parts of the, the day-to-day life. And then the Riff app, what is that for? Riff is, um, it is a way to add nuance to, you know, conversations that are happening online or things that you're seeing online. So I think that's a frustration that a lot of people have with something like Twitter is you can both be, you, know, you can be in a conversation with somebody and there's just so so little nuance to to have in that in that forum or that discussion that you're always find yourself talking past people or often find yourself talking past people. And so this is sort of an audio expansion, a way to almost annotate the web. So uh, taking you know taking images or uh, screenshots of or pictures of of different things that um, that you're seeing on on Twitter or on a blog or in your just walking around and adding audio on top of it. So it's a way to just enrich those um, those things that you're seeing throughout your day with audio. Again, sort of a, a more intimate, more nuanced way to uh, to provide context on on a conversation, so that you can move away from the the flame wars that often occur in in social media conversations to something that's a bit more substantive. All right, that's cool. The um, so I want to end this one talking about you know investing in general. Like it seems like Benchmark uh, has had a big influence on you 
you covered it in the long essay that you did. Um, you know, Benchmark's been doing top of their game in the venture business for a couple decades at least. Mm-hmm. And, and you wrote a deep da- dive on how, how you think about that and how it's affected you. So they seem to obviously be a mentor or the way they think is, is kind of how you think. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to look at a, a group like that or a firm like that that has had the type of continuity and success and not be really impressed and not want to, you know, as a student of investing in venture capital to try to dig in and to analyze it a little bit more. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a very fair uh, assumption or fair point. So you, you did this thing on, on the merits of bottoms up investing. So what, like walk us through that and take your time and, and, and how you, you look at the benchmark model and Klarman and Uber and liquidity quality and kind of meld all that together for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, value investors will, will certainly be familiar with Seth Klarman and, and one of his sort of um, seminal, I guess, discussion topics in, in uh, the book Margin of Safety is... Uh, really all around top-down versus bottoms-up investing. So top-down being this approach where you're trying to time the market, you're trying to be smarter and, and outsmart all of these different people. You're, you know, you're really um, facing a pretty daunting task of predicting what's going to happen you know, more accurately and faster than thousands of different people. And it kind of turns into almost this greater fool game. Um, whereas you know, bottoms-up investing, on the other hand, is really... You know, looking at all the cards on the table, as as Benchmark often talks about it, you know, it's it's not coming with a you know a predefined narrative in mind, not getting carried away with um, with with that narrative that might be driving the market, but really, you know, seeing the present clearly is is the phrase that they often use and often talk about, and that sort of always resonated with me um, because I think as a you know when you're first getting involved in investing and probably until the day you stop investing. It is always hard to, you know, stay elevated above the narrative to sort of understand what the narrative is, but understand where the holes in it are, and you know what might be uh, what might be false about that narrative. And so, I think that approach is is something that that resonated pretty strongly. Um, that idea of staying grounded in the present, staying grounded in the tactile reality of what's happening on the ground, which doesn't mean you know being ignorant of of what's happened in the past that got the market to where it is, and it certainly doesn't mean um, not having a point of view about the future because that's that's critical for for any investor and especially for venture investors. But it's really again about what's happening on the ground today. Um, I think that the way that Bill Gurley talks about it, which is what the word that you mentioned, which is this idea of liquidity quality, is is really good and really profound. And it's it's this idea of you know not looking too far ahead, not not necessarily um, you know expanding too fast, but really focusing again. What's in front of you? What's on the ground? How do we drive really, really incredible, you know, unit economics growth within a small cohort, and then think about, you know, expanding and, and driving bigger and and um, really getting things spinning that way. And so, I mean, all of those things kind of you know come together. And I think the the way that I describe it in the in the post is, you know, I think they've had a number of those uh, a number of those investments that if you look back, and it's always easy to to kind of make these observations looking backwards, but um, you see things like Stitch Fix and you see things like Yelp as being very, um, very perfect applications of this where, you know, maybe initially the market seemed small or they were only in one or two cities, but they had this incredible sort of engagement and retention and the, the fire was sort of burning bright. And when you get to that point, you know, it's then easy to 
go bigger, um, pour venture capital dollars on it, et cetera. And so I think the same thing was true with, with Uber, where it was really, you know, if you sort of, if you took a, a top down view on it, which I think a lot of people did back in the day, and they said, looking at this from a top down view, the global taxi market is X billion dollars or X hundred million dollars even. So there's no way that Uber can ever be, you know, bigger than this. Whereas what was actually happening on the ground was that they were creating this entirely new transportation infrastructure. Um, they were changing consumer behavior. They were leveraging new technologies and um, this this new platform that was emerging in, in the iPhone. And they were really creating something that was the perfect kind of bottoms up investment. So yeah, so that's that's kind of the I guess long winded way uh, of saying that it's it's really a you know by writing something like that it's really just sort of committing myself to this commitment bias of, of trying to hold true to that idea of not getting too carried away by narrative understanding what the narrative is but trying to stay grounded in what's happening you know on the ground what's being driven by by these entrepreneurs by these new business models by these new technologies um, versus versus trying to take it from from too much of a, a top down view where you know, you're sitting in a, in a room somewhere thinking you're, you know, the smartest person in the world and, and making all these decisions. And then last question about thematic investment, you know, Seth talked, Seth Clarman talks about the perils of it. What do you, what do you see in there? Cause I'm a thematic person myself. And so are you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. And I think the other piece of that writing it was that it was a bit contradictory to the way that I think that that I invest and our team invests and the way that a lot of investors in the market that I, you know, look up to and, and have a lot of respect for invest. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, maybe the closer you get to company formation, um, you know, as a pre-seed investor, seed stage investor, um, when the market is not there yet, when it hasn't been developed, you do certainly have to be a little bit closer to that founder mindset, a little bit closer to that very thematic approach of, of why you're going after something. So I think it was interesting to explore what they do because it is, it is a bit contradictory to the way that you almost have to invest at that stage. So the distinction I would sort of make there is, um, is that bottoms up investing again, isn't about not having a, not having a perspective on the future, but it is about making sure that the work that you're doing is, is sort of first party on the ground. You're not removed from from what's happening and not letting narrative drive you too much. You're staying as close as you can to the actual entrepreneurs that are building this stuff, the actual consumer behavior that's driving you know new adoption, the actual technologies that are coming to market. So that's kind of the way that I think about it. So I agree. I mean, I think thematic investing is is uh, is is great and very uh, very valuable. And again, as you're closer and closer to that formation of a company, it's it's probably more and more necessary. Um, but there's a there's a probably a give and take so that you don't go too far in either direction that I think is important. Okay, great. Anything uh, I was going to ask you quickly the biggest difference, you know, family life, is it, is it, is it uh, quality of life or cost of living between, you know, Chicago, Paris, you know, we talked about business wise, but like, what's the biggest, you know, life change again, yeah. COVID aside. Uh, right. Right. You know, it, it's really interesting. I think that the one thing that I think I probably understood before moving here, but, um, but that is, is always a bit surprising is just how similar life can be. And, uh, in any big city uh, that you live in around the world. So, you know, there's nothing that uh, there's, you know, nothing sort of day to day too much that that you sort of miss from from the US. I think that one thing that is, you know, quite interesting uh, here in Paris versus a, a place like Chicago, Paris is a much more expensive city um, than Chicago on the face in terms of cost of living. But um, some of the things, you know, with having having uh, two kids here, things like childcare, things like healthcare, those things are just um, so much less expensive 
I mean, at face value from a consumer payment perspective, obviously the, the tax situation plays into how, how that all gets paid for. But um, in terms of out-of-pocket stuff, that's been actually pretty interesting to, to be able to move to a city like Paris that is a lot more expensive in terms of any kind of cost of living index that you look at and actually have, you know, the, the quality of life, the, uh, the cost of living be, you know, pretty, uh, pretty much the same or actually less expensive than Chicago. So that's been kind of an interesting thing to see. All right. You're the man, Brett. It's just a pleasure to uh, kind of think with you. We kind of think alike. So I always get nervous at like, okay, well, just I'm, I'm globbing on to people that think like me, but, uh, I like the way you meld public and private and how you think about the world. And obviously you've got uh, an explorer in you moving around the world. That's a big change. No, no matter what Chicago, Paris, big change. And, um, what, what do you feel about the economy there? Like, is it, is it as bad as I think it is Europe? Is it just, just feels creaky. Yeah, it's, it's quite, it's quite creaky here. I mean, I think we, we spent last week, uh, where, where my wife is from in the East of France, a really beautiful kind of tourist town in the mountains with Lake and everything like that. And you really start to, you see the impacts very visibly. You see, you know, way fewer tourists, uh, Asian tourists, American tourists. It's all, it's all French people. The restaurants seem packed when you look at them, but then you realize it's because nobody's inside eating. So yeah, I think that things are, things are pretty creaky here, just like they are in the U S and, and sort of all over the place. So I think a lot of people are sort of waiting for the other foot to drop. I think the good thing is that, you know, schools are back in session, daycare is back, kids are at sort of summer school here. So some of the challenges that have maybe prevented people from being able to go back to work in the U S or be as productive, uh, with their work in the U S has been stunted a little bit just because of the fact that people can get back to normal life uh, a little bit faster here. But Again, we'll see. There's so much uncertainty that, you know, in a week's time, we could be right back in quarantine mode uh, or, you know, something like that. So, uh, yeah, I think creaky is a really good way to describe it. People are walking a bit on eggshells, sort of like everybody's still going on their vacation, doing their trips, but they're certainly not spending as much, not going as far away and, and sort of uh, all a little bit more cautious. Yeah, Europe is creaky. I would say U.S. is creepy. So we both have uh, our worries. You know, it's, it sucks living in a creepy era here. It's just like ugh, cringe. Everything's cringeworthy. But yeah. uh, Europe, Europe doesn't cringe as much. But it just, like I said, it just feels like it was. It, it feels like you could tip either way. So rooting for the old continent. Hope to get over to Italy soon. I appreciate your time, and we'll we'll keep you on the uh, rotation. Yeah, thank you. No, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on and talk. And yeah, it was great to do this. All right, thanks, Brett. Thanks, Howard. Canute, what's up, buddy? Not much. I kind of wonder. I was going to ask him if I had a chance to how they pronounce his name in France. Uh, Bivens. I mean, it's like uh, Bivon. Yeah, they just they just say. Uh, I mean, they from just a guy, smoke in his face like every other American. And go <laughs> from a guy's name who's been butchered all over the world. <laughs> I can sympathize. <laughs> Le Brett. Le Brett. Le Brett. Anyways. Uh, like the way he thinks good follow for people mostly you know try and discover people here that uh have a unique take on the world and he definitely does chicago paris health wellness audio uh i'm in that camp so i like finding people that uh, are surfing up uh ideas that give me both conviction and new ideas yep. so uh, easy follow on twitter keeps things simple so Hopefully everybody enjoyed that. We'll be back soon. If you like the podcast, just follow along. Go to uh, search my name, Howard Linton, L-A-N-D-Z-O-N on Spotify or Apple. 
And uh, the show is now produced by uh, Team Stocktwit, so you can search for them, I think, as well, Canute. And uh, if you like uh, the way I think, you have a free daily blog, howardlinzen.com. Go subscribe. It's free, as is the podcast. So uh, push the subscribe button. And uh, we're doing these two times a week with uh, investors, traders, and uh, founders, entrepreneurs. Thanks, everybody. Talk soon.